welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And I am jumping right into today's case. Elise, this is totally a new territory for me. I am covering a serial killer. I typically don't do. I tend to do more research over cold cases or missing persons cases, but this kind of came out of nowhere and I'm running with it. Well, hey, now I get a break from doing the research on serial killers. So take it away, Annie. Right. I'll just relax for this episode. This guy was, I hate to say it, but smart when it came to dodging authority and he would disappear seemingly into thin air at times. He had so many aliases that when he died in prison, his real identity was not truly learned until long after he passed. Just as he readily changed his aliases, this serial killer also changed locations frequently. He was a known drifter whose victims were primarily single mothers and their children. This episode is over a killer that I haven't really heard of, but he goes by the Bob Evans killer, the Chameleon killer, Curtis Kimball, Gordon Jensen, Larry Vanner, Jerry Mofferman, or the name that I prefer to call him as his birth name, Terry Rasmussen. Have you heard of him? Well, I don't know. You just listed off 20 people, it seemed like. He confuses authorities. He confuses the least. There was one that when you said it, I don't remember which one, but when you said it, I was like, oh, that kind of sounds familiar. But the rest of them, no. I don't think I've ever heard of him. You and I are in the same boat where we've been listening and watching true crime for so many years that it's easy to kind of forget about someone. If I listen to someone talk about Terry six years ago, I'm not going to remember him. So to me, this is a new case. Before Terry became this murderous, violent killer, he seemed to have a pretty simple and normal early life. I know one thing we always look at when it comes to serial killers is how was their childhood? Were there any red flags? And for Terry, he seemed to have a very average life. He was born on December 23rd, 1943 in Denver, Colorado. Always, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Every case, back to Denver. How do you keep finding your way back here, huh? They signed me. (laughs) I have no idea. When he was young, his family moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where he attended elementary school and high school up until his sophomore year when he dropped out. Terry spent most of his early formative years in Phoenix, and while not much is known about his upbringing or adolescent behavior, There has never really been any suspicious reports of his childhood indicating otherwise. When he was 18 years old, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy, but was discharged shortly after. I couldn't find why. He spent the next few years moving around the country and eventually moved to Hawaii to live his best island life, and he fell in love with a woman and got married to her. After he got married, his family moved back to Phoenix to be closer to his family, and he became a father to twin daughters. Then a few years later, they had a son and another daughter. Not a lot is said about his first wife and those four kids, but he lived a pretty average, normal life. All of that came to a halt in 1973 when he came on law enforcement's radar. He was 30 years old when he was arrested for aggravated assault and then arrested two years later in 1975 for, again, aggravated assault. At this point, his wife and children had had enough, and they left him shortly after that arrest. So this man... Went from seemingly living a very quiet, subtle life to all of a sudden we don't know what changed or what shifted, what was a boiling point for him, and he's just getting arrested for assault. And that's the first thing on his record. Which, yeah, and that has, like, stunned law enforcement. They don't know what this trigger point was. But he went from being a dad to four kids, living this good life, and then, boom, got arrested back-to-back two years for aggravated assault, which is a pretty aggressive and violent crime. Right. 
Over the next 35 years, this man would prove to be a completely rotten human being. His reign of terror spanned the entire country, and it's still a mystery how many lives this man took. This brings us to the first part of our episode, the Allenstown Four, also known as the Bear Brook Murders. The Allenstown Four are thought to be Terry's first victims. This case was cold for decades, but due to advancements in DNA testing, it does have a bit of a closure. It's the late summer of 1985, and some kids are playing hide-and-seek in the remote forest of Bear Brook State Park, located in Allenstown, New Hampshire. One of the kids in the group comes upon a rusted blue barrel out in the middle of the woods. Oh, no. And kids were being kids. They were a bit curious. They go up to the barrel. They try to lift the top of the barrel off. And when they manage to get it off, they were hit with a smell that was absolutely putrid. Oh, I already know where this is going. The kids got spooked, kicked the barrel over, and hightailed it out of the woods. I think you and I both know what was in that barrel. Oh, that this reminds me of a story. I'm going to go on a sidebar here because I don't think I've told you this, and I didn't even know this till recently. When I started this podcast, obviously I told my parents I was starting it, and my dad told a story kind of similar to that of how he came upon a dead body that he thought was a mannequin in a truck. In Alaska? Um, no, I think this was in Washington State. Then goes home and tells his dad about this you know, mannequin he found. And it's never a mannequin, right? And when you <laughs> find a barrel in the woods that smells bad, it's probably not a barrel of like old scraps. It's always something more sinister. And it's just sad when kids stumble upon this stuff because, could you imagine? No, and in this case, the kids never told anyone. At least your dad told someone and they were able to investigate because the kids found this barrel, they smelled the smell, they ran away, and they pretended like it never happened. Four months later, in November, the fall hunting season is in full force. A hunter was walking, and out of the corner of his eye, he sees something that grabs his attention. It's that blue 55-gallon drum tipped over with trash scattered around it. He, being an adult, decides to check it out, and what he discovers is that of a nightmare. The hunter immediately calls 911 and tells the police to meet him at the edge of the woods. His face is pale and he's almost in this state of shock, but he manages to tell the police that he found two bodies wrapped in plastic inside the barrel. Oh, and this is four months later. And if this is hunting season, I imagine it's fall. So they have been in there all summer. Oh, gross. A hot summer on the East Coast. Those two bodies were that of a woman who was guessed to be around 23 to 33 years old, and a little girl who was between the ages of 8 to 10. One super unique feature to this child is that she had a double ear piercing on both ears, which was really odd, especially given the time period. I thought that was kind of unique about her. Autopsies determined both had died of blunt force trauma to the head. The New Hampshire State Police immediately checked missing people cases from the 1970s and 1980s but were unable to identify the bodies. They issue flyers, and they wait for someone to come forward to claim these two people, but days pass, then weeks, and eventually the case goes cold. The biggest question investigators have is, how can a woman and a child go missing, and how can no one report it? Right, and why isn't anyone claiming them? Right, how can no one come forward and say, oh my gosh, I know these people, and yeah, they've been missing. And police are basically begging the public for help, because it's a woman and a little baby, you know? she's. A little girl. Well, and as much as you would hate to think that this would be the end if someone in your family went missing, but I feel like at the same time, anytime you heard on the news that a body was found or anything that even remotely 
match the description of someone that is missing that you love, you would be calling in. Exactly. And that brings me to the next point, which was a general thought was that these people may have been from a different town or even a different state. The two were buried in an Allenstown cemetery with a tombstone that read, Here lies the mortal remains, known only to God, of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl child aged 8 to 10. That is an aggressive uh, inscription on a tombstone. And what's interesting is I said the child aged 8 to 10, but law enforcement thought it was 6 to 10. That was not a misspeak. That was just was on the tombstone. And on the tombstone also said their slain bodies were found on November 10th in Bear Book State Park. We couldn't do a rest in peace to this Jane Doe. And Right. Where's a poet when you need it? We got to workshop that tombstone a little bit. We do. We do. There's no comfort in reading that tombstone. No, it's pretty morbid. It's sad. Fast forward to May 9th, 2000, and police go back to the scene of the crime to do more investigating. This is when a state police sergeant who was newly assigned to the case stumbles upon the unimaginable. He finds a 55-gallon drum close to the first location of that original drum, and there are more human remains in it. This is 15 years later. So was this a new drum or did they just do a really crappy job searching the area the first time around? A crappy job searching the area. How do you miss a 55-gallon drum? According to investigators, the reason that it took so long for the second drum to be recovered was because it was located outside the proximity of the initial crime scene. You know how they do like that crime scene do not cross? Right. But what's wild is this drum was found 100 yards away. That's it. This is not far at all. You would Okay, so that's the size of a football field. You would think if you're scanning for evidence, and again, we're not investigators. You find two bodies. Then it should be an even bigger search field, right? And you would assume that things have been disturbed. It's in the middle of the forest. I could understand if it was like a piece of bone fragment that they didn't find, mm-hmm. of course. But a 55-gallon drum, they just walk past it. They're like, oop. That's outside of our radius. We're not going to check that out, even though we just found two bodies inside of one. It is wild to me. And their excuse was like, oh, yeah, we missed it. Mind-blowing. Inside the drum, it's going to get a little bit worse, Mm. there are two small skeleton bodies. At first, police can't tell much about them due to the state of decomposition. But after being taken to a lab, it's determined they were both little girls. The first girl was between two and four, and the second was one and three. What they want to do now is they want to exhume the bodies that were found back in 1985 and see if there's any kind of connection with all four bodies. So a month later on June 8th, they do that. They exhume the bodies. And over the next 17 years, yes, I said 17, because remember, these are all Jane Doe's. They have no idea where to even start doing DNA testing. They actually do find out their identities, and it kind of gives a little bit of a clue to the case. (gasps) It's his first wife. You're so close. It's his second wife. (laughs) (laughs) You're so, so close. I feel like you have the mind of the investigator for sure. Investigators were determined to give these people back their identity. At this point, it's three little kids and a woman. I think every person on this case just wants justice. And lucky for them, DNA is now widely used. Here's what investigators and scientists were able to determine. First is the fact that the woman was identified as being maternally related to two of the three girls, meaning she could be their mother, an older sister, or an aunt. 
As it turns out, she was their mother. Oh, no. So this is a family annihilator situation. Yeah. Her identity is revealed as being Mary Lee's Elizabeth Honeychurch. Did you say Mary Elise? Mary Lee's. Oh, I was like, this is kind, kind of close. I can't hear my name <laughs> in a case. That might give me, keep me up at night. <laughs> the reason they were able to give her name back is because when Mary Lee went missing and her family filed a report, they gave their DNA to law enforcement in hopes that one day they would make a connection, and they did just that. Mary Lee was born in Connecticut in 1954, was married twice, and had a daughter with each husband. Marie Vaughn was first. She was born in 1971. Then Sarah McWaters was born six years later in 1977. Mary Lee was last seen at her mother's house in La Punta, California, at Thanksgiving in 1978 when she was 24 years old. It was there that she introduced her family to her boyfriend, Terry Rasmussen. You know, I'm not going to be judgmental about names, but this Rasmussen thing reminds me of Rasputin, right? I always think of that Anastasia and the little like funky bat, but that name (laughs) should have been a first clue, I feel like. Yeah, I did a lot of Google pronouncing like, how do I say this last name? Because it's a mouthful. At Thanksgiving, there was a lot of concern around this boyfriend. Mary Elise's mom didn't like him, and she and Mary Elise got into a huge argument. The mom felt like Terry was too old for her daughter, and because of this fight, Mary Elise, her two daughters, and Terry left to get together, and that would be the last time the parents ever saw their daughter and grandchildren. Mary Elise's brother, named David, did an interview with ABC's 2020 and said the following, It tore my mom up. She took the blame for her leaving, and it just hurts that she doesn't know that it wasn't her fault. She left with someone that was going to be horrible, basically. So I feel like this poor mom had a lot of guilt to no fault at all of her. She was trying to be protective, trying to look out for her daughter and just didn't happen that way. Exactly. It's obviously not anything the mom did, but that would be so hard to not only be missing your child, but know that the last time that you guys had an interaction, it was not a positive one. But Mm -hmm. I okay. I'm trying to put this together. So the bodies were found, you said, in New Hampshire. But they went missing. Yeah, on the East Coast. But they went missing in California. That's probably why I see. That's probably why they weren't. Why no one came forward. Right. Because why would you think your loved one is across the country? Right. And that's the thing about Terry is he was like sleuthy, stealthy, stealthy. (laughs) (laughs) He was all over the place and he was using different names and he was taking the victims and moving people around. I like sleuthy. (laughs) Can we keep sleuthy? Yeah, we're doing it. But let's go back to these bodies that were found. The oldest of Mary Lee's daughter, named Marie, was discovered to be the little girl found in the barrel with her mom. I found a picture of Marie, and oh my gosh, she is so cute. She has this adorable, crooked little blonde haircut, and she's in the backseat of a car with a Coca-Cola bottle and this mischievous little grin. I'll put it on the Instagram because it is so cute. And it's really sad because it turns out that picture was taken at the very last Thanksgiving where the family was all together. It's a bit ominous. The second child discovered was the body of Sarah, Mary Lisa's other daughter. Like I said earlier, she was between the ages of two and three, and she has a cute little gap between her two front teeth and long, straight blonde hair. The third child's a bit of a mystery. She's not related to Mary Lise, Marie, or Sarah. She was around the age of two and four and quickly became known as the middle child. When investigators ran her DNA through the system, alarm bells went off. Do you have any idea whose daughter this is? 
Okay, wait, hold on. I'm being sleuthy here. Let me put together the clues <laughs> that you gave me. Not related to the other three. Mm-mm. But she was related to someone close to Mary Lise. She was the daughter of Terry Rasmussen. I hate this asshole. Yeah. So he killed not only Mary Lee, Sarah, and Marie, but also his own daughter. That takes a certain... I mean, killing anyone is vile, but killing children is a whole other cup of tea. But being able to kill your own child makes you... I mean, there is a certain place in hell for people like that. Agree. And Terry is believed to be the murderer. But if you look at the timeline, just because these murders tie back to him doesn't mean he ever had to answer for them. From the time he committed the Allentown Four murders up until the time he died, he did a lot of horrible things. What's hard is this murder was committed back in the 70s, back in the 80s. He lived a normal life. Don't get me wrong, it was horrible. He was murdering people and kidnapping people along the way, but he never had to answer for those four, and that just breaks my heart. Another victim is named Denise Boudin. In 1981, a 23-year-old named Denise went missing shortly after Thanksgiving with her six-month-old daughter and her boyfriend, Terry Rasmussen, who attended that family Thanksgiving. I I give up. I give up on this man. She knew Terry as Robert Evans, nicknamed Bob Evans, which is how he got that name, the Bob Evans murderer. Oh, I thought Bob Evans, isn't Bob Evans like a brand or a restaurant or something? It's like a nice family restaurant. Yeah, so I thought maybe that's be like the scene of the crime, but I didn't realize it was going to be an alias. That would make sense. I was like, who's mm-hmm. killing someone over brunch? Brunch is great. No reason to kill people. Right, we all love brunch. This is a very similar situation as Mary Lisey's. Denise's family did not like Terry, and they were really surprised when they found out Denise left the Manchester area unexpectedly. It's important to note that they did not file a missing persons report when she left because they had a fight similar to Mary Lee's. And her, their daughter was 23 years old. She left on her own accord, supposedly, with her daughter. And it's no fault of the families, but it kind of did hinder the investigation a little bit. Decades after Denise disappeared and after a formal missing persons report had been filed, the family told investigators that Denise had a daughter. The child's birth name is Dawn, but she's referred to as Lisa. It's kind of assumed that when Terry made Denise disappear, he changed the child's identity a little bit. Lisa would have been five around the time that the family reported her mom missing. So just to clarify, it's not like they go to these family events Then the extended family is like, we don't like Terry Rasputin. And then there is a time where this man convinces them to leave together and, you know, screw your family. They're terrible. It's us against the world. So there's a time period where they are alive and willingly going somewhere else, even if it's, you know, a manipulation on Terry's part. But he does keep them alive for a while after this. 100%. Not really determined how long. At this time, Lisa was living in a trailer park in California with a man who was named Gordon Jensen, but was just another alias of Terry Rasmussen. Terry was working on this internal behind-the-scenes adoption and was going to let a couple from Southern California take Lisa for two weeks and see if she was a good fit for their family. So now he's doing, like, underground adoptions of... Other people's children. There's no way you can tell me that he convinced this woman to give up her child, who before meeting him raised wonderfully. Right. And he claims, this is my daughter, but it turns out she was not his daughter. What happened, which is kind of known with all the reports and law enforcement, is he made Denise disappear, but he kept her daughter. 
I have no idea why he wanted to get Lisa adopted out. I'm not sure if he didn't want to be a dad or if he needed money. Well, he clearly didn't want to be a dad because he killed his other child. Right. Good point. But lucky for little Lisa, the couple who was in the process of adopting her were actually really great people. And they believed that Lisa was being abused. They fell in love with Lisa during their little two-week stay. And they jumped into action. They decided that, yes, we want to adopt her. We're ready to go and make the next move. But when they reached out to Terry to complete the adoption, she had completely disappeared. This guy is playing mind games with everyone. Like, what is the point? Okay, so you don't want to be a dad. You've probably killed the mother at this point. And now, Mm -hmm. instead of just doing one decent thing, which is a weird thing to say that an illegal adoption is a wonderful thing, but getting a child Mm -hmm. away from him clearly is. And he doesn't even follow through with that. What What is the purpose? Just to hurt people? His brain is something that should be studied at a science museum. I mean, truly, it's incredible like what he does. And I don't mean that in a good way. The couple got law enforcement involved, and Lisa was then taken into protective custody. Like I said, these were just some good people who wanted the best for her. When she was in protective custody, police asked her if she had any siblings. She said that she did at one point, but they died from eating grass mushrooms when they were out camping. Police believe her answers indicate that they may have been killed by Rasmussen too. So from the time that Denise left her family, right, Lisa was six months old, she's now five. A lot could have happened in four and a half years. Maybe Denise and Terry had another baby. Maybe they lived kind of a good life for a few years and then he snapped. It's really hard to tell because this is coming from the mouth of a five-year-old. But what a creepy thing to say. From eating grass mushrooms. We live in Denver. There's a lot of people that eat mushrooms and have some wild experiences, but they're not dying that way. Right. And I just can't imagine the police and law enforcement being like, oh, this poor kid's been through a lot. To say that, you have to have some kind of basis of truth. And then why keep her alive? Oh, this is going to keep me up at night. I have too many questions about this already. Mm -hmm. In 1989, Terry was arrested for child abandonment and was subsequently sentenced to three years in prison. Under his plea agreement, an additional charge of child abuse was dropped. Frustrating. But he pled guilty. He was behind bars. Okay, he's at least going to be locked up for a little bit. But aren't they asking, where's the mom? They weren't, because they thought it was his daughter. I think it's a he said, she said type of thing. He could have been saying, no, Denise and I got into a huge fight. She left. I haven't seen her in years. I'm doing the Lord's work by raising this kid. Who knows what he's saying? I feel like he's a master manipulator. Upon his release from prison, he broke parole and fled, which is super frustrating because it brings us to his next victim, Unsung Jun. What's interesting is that even though Unsung is not believed to be Terry's first victim, remember that was the Allentown's four, she was the first to be positively connected to him and her murder put him behind bars. Unsung Jun was a chemist from California and was in her mid-40s when she introduced her family and friends to her boyfriend, Larry Banner, a.k.a. Terry Rasmussen. To keep the story straight, I'm going to refer to him as Terry throughout the whole episode because, as you can tell, we have like 10 different names circling now and it gets confusing. Unsung's friends hated her boyfriend. They said that he didn't look healthy, his face was gray. He smoked cigarettes constantly, and he had no manners at family and friends get-togethers. Wait a minute. This is starting to ring some bells. Does the gray thing— Unsung's murder? No. Does the gray description of him keep coming up? Not really. Not that I was able to find. Okay. Well, there's two serial killers apparently described as the gray man. 
who kill children. Great. What's so funny is his friends, like they hated him and they would say he would gobble up his food, burp really loudly and then pass out on the couch for hours. Like talk about a piece of shit. Well, I don't know if that's the worst. We might do that at Thanksgiving. Okay, but. Right. And I don't know if that's the worst way. Like that would not be something that really stuck out to me. If my friend brought a guy over, I'd be like, yeah, he fell asleep, jerk. That was- <laughs> They were like very nitpicky. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that. There's worse things than that, but clearly something set them off or gave them a weird feeling and rightfully so because this guy's a POS. Mm-hmm. Unsan disappeared from Richmond, California in June 2002, approximately two years after Terry met her friends and family. When her friends couldn't get a hold of Unsan, Terry was quick to fend off their questions with an array of excuses. He would say things like, oh, she's busy taking care of her mother, or she was going to get some therapeutic help and requested some space from her friends. Unsan had one really, really great friend named Renee Rose, and she was determined to get answers. And she actually went straight to the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office to talk about her friend. We talked about that place in the last case. Contra Costa. It's a mouthful. Yeah, because I was like, wow, it's a lot of alliteration. So Yeah, I do remember that. Maybe there's like hot spots in the country. I think there are. So while she was at the sheriff's office, an investigator took the case and questioned Terry. Terry's story kept changing and he would purposely try and distract the investigator, which immediately sent up red flags. That investigator said, When somebody's story keeps changing, it means that they have either made something up, can't remember what they told you the first time, or that they're lying to you. Well, this man already, we know of three or four identities that he has. Of course, he can't keep all that straight. Like, how does he... I feel like he would be pretending to be Larry and slip up and say he's Terry. I mean, those names even sound so similar. (laughs) You think he'd get like Mark and John or something. Yeah, I don't understand how people like this do it because we've all told white lies. We've probably told big lies. But to make up a whole other person, you'd have to, to make it believable. You'd have to have different backstories for everyone. It'd be so exhausting. I can't remember a lot of the details in each week on our episodes, much less a whole (laughs) new life. Because of Terry's changing stories and the suspicion around him, law enforcement obtained a warrant to search his house. While searching his California home, detectives located an enormous pile of cat litter in a crawl space. What's one thing you know about cat litter? It kind of tends to hide the smell, correct? Uh, yeah, it sure does. Also, I don't like where this is going either. The pile of litter was around four or five feet in diameter and roughly two to three feet high. Reports say that there was no odor in a crawl space. They say there was no odor, but there was an axe leaning against the door. Buried in the cat litter, police found a human foot completely mummified wearing a flip-flop. And ultimately, the rest of the body was found shortly after, and it was identified as being Unsan's who police determined had died of blunt force trauma to the head, which is a common theme with Terry Rasmussen. That is always the cause of death, blunt force trauma to the head. How the heck? I mean, I get that they're saying there was no smell, but again, you have to be a certain kind of messed up to just go to sleep one floor away from your dead ex-partner's body every night. Like you're tucking yourself in, you're watching your dateline while there's a corpse of someone that you pretended to love 20 feet below you. That's so sad. In November of 2002, Terry was arrested for Unsan's murder. 
And in 2003, he was sentenced to prison for 15 years to life after he pled guilty to the crime. I feel like 15 years to life is not a whole lot, but I'm sure there was some kind of behind the scenes plea agreement because he did plead guilty. Terry would go on to serve only seven of those years because he died in prison in 2010 of natural causes. He was 67 years old at the time of his death. That is the only time I will say seven years was long enough because good riddance to Terry, Larry, Bob, and whoever else he wanted to call himself. What's frustrating is at this point, he had only been charged with Boonsan's murder and the issues of Lisa, like child abandonment. That's it. All of these other murders came to light after he passed away. Which is infuriating because he never had an answer for him. Ugh, those poor families. The next few disappearances are thought to be connected to Terry. We know that he was a drifter. He used a lot of different names, and he's just kind of hard to track in general. One person who is believed to be connected to him is the mother of the middle child. Remember that middle child found in the barrel in Allenstown who was Terry's daughter? Her mother has never been found nor identified. She's never come out and said, oh, that's my little girl. I've been looking for her. Nothing. And when the news broke, this was national news because it was like, oh, my gosh, this serial killer's daughter was one of the four found in Allenstown. And it's not like someone would have just missed that, especially if you're looking for your daughter. So authorities fear that the mother of this little girl is another possible victim. Of well, Terry. And he seems to unless I'm misunderstanding, it seems like he kills the moms first and then keeps mm -hmm. the children for a certain period of time for God knows what. Yes. His M.O. was dating a woman who has a kid and killing them, which is sad. In 1995, back in California, scavengers were hunting for abandoned items in a canal in the San Rocans County. They stumbled upon a refrigerator that had ropes tied around it and had been dumped. They cut the ropes, open up the fridge, and they find human remains inside. The woman inside had been placed in the refrigerator with a pillow, sleeping bag, and what appears to be several blankets. How they connected this victim back to Terry Rasmussen was because of a brand of milk, which is what? super odd to me. There was this very unique brand of milk that was only delivered to a certain area that matched up with where Terry was at the time of this woman's remains. And her cause of death was blunt force, blunt force trauma. trauma to the head. Wait, I got to pause here. This is really interesting, though, that he potentially, if it's the same guy, if he put her in with a sleeping bag, she had blunt force trauma. So she was already, I would assume, gone when she went into this mm -hmm. fridge. I think so. What is the need for that almost shows like somewhat of a little bit of guilt, you would think, if he's trying to make almost a coffin-like thing for her, right? That's a good point. Because when you bury someone, if they're in a coffin, they would have, you know, the comfortable thing to lay on, a pillow, all of that. Was he recreating that? And this is his weird, messed up way of showing some remorse, remorse or empathy for this person. Oh, that is such a good point. I've never thought about that because the others were kind of just discarded, thrown away. I mean, as hard as that is to say. But yeah, she was kind of tucked away in this refrigerator. And the fact that they tied her to Terry because of a brand of milk, that's some good investigating right there. Sadly, though, this investigation is stalled because she is still unidentified. But we've seen so many cold cases be solved, and I'm so hopeful that one day she'll get her identity back. There's a few other potential victims linked to Terry in some way, shape, or form, including 14-year-old Lorene Ron, who lived only a mile and a half from Terry 
when she disappeared in April of 1980. There is a woman named Denise Denault who was 25 years old and lived on the same street as Terry did. She went missing from a bar back in June of 1980. And I want to say these are nothing more than speculation, but investigators took a really hard look at Terry's known whereabouts and cross-referenced them with known disappearances. And knowing how violent and sneaky Terry is, it kind of makes sense in my head that he would have some kind of connection with them. Living a mile away from someone who happens to go missing while you're living there is sketchy. Well, do you know if, because so many people do this, right? They get arrested for one crime and then they start gabbing because they want the attention or notoriety. Did he ever claim anyone or confess even say he was guilty of this one murder? Not that I can tell, but he's a drifter. He could have had pockets of friends around the country who maybe weren't the best of people. I mean, you got to look what he looks like. He looks spooky. He's got a crazy look in his eye. I'll just say that. You know, we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but. We're judging. (laughs) He looks scary. His eyes are are, are looking right into my soul. I don't like it very Mm -hmm. much. Oh, my gosh. So he never fessed up to anything besides the four, or did he even fess up to them? He didn't fess up to the four. So the only people that he was connected with, because remember, he died in 2010. The Allenstown victims were given their identities back in 2017. The only people he's connected to was Unsong Jun and Lisa for child abandonment. Lisa's still alive today, which it's also amazing that she managed to live with Terry for like four and a half years and she survived. She must have been an incredible five-year-old. Remind me, is she or is she not his biological child? She's not. Okay. The middle child is. Right. The one found in the barrel. But they have no idea who her mom is. But I'm going to end with something kind of positive about this little middle child. You know, I love a good DNA connection. And something pretty big happened back in January of 2021. Police in Louisiana announced that new genealogy research shows that the middle child, Terry's daughter, might have relatives from Pearl River County, Mississippi. It's believed that the girl and her biological mother are descendants of one of two men born in the mid-1800s. This might seem like a wild goose chase. I know, 1800s, they have narrowed it down to one of two men, though. Think about how big the population is. Like, I think that's kind of amazing. wild that they're able to do that. Like, that your genes tell you that much about your ancestry. Yeah, and so they put out this information. I think they know more than what they put out there, but they're kind of waiting for the public to come out and say, hey, that's weird. That's my great-great-great-grandpa, too. But if anyone's in Mississippi area and you are on any kind of DNA testing, maybe go take a little peek and do some digging because I so want this little girl and her mother to have their identity. I mean, she was a baby, didn't have a life at all, and her poor mother, who was sadly probably not with us anymore should also get her name back and be found hopefully that would be amazing wouldn't it i don't like this guy i don't understand i i mean i said it before already in this episode but how do you hurt a child much less now potentially four children are linked back to him that he either abused abandoned i do not understand it at all but it's so odd that lisa survived yeah, what's the why like, behind that? If he had something to do with Denise, her mother, maybe he had this guilt of like, but also he killed Mary Lise and her two daughters. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you can't have much of a soul and kill children. So I don't want to give him more credit than it's, you know, mm-hmm. than he deserves at, in <laughs> any capacity. But it does seem strange 
I just wish there was a, a profile on this guy that we could read. He is definitely a different kind of serial killer. Very average upbringing, normal life, seemingly like no red flags in childhood, which don't get me wrong, that can flip on a switch. I understand that. But then, boom. 1973, 1975, two back-to-back aggravated assault charges. Like you said, what was the trigger? Now I want to go do a deep dive and try to find something about it because we've said it almost every single episode. That's the part of this that really gets me interested is trying mm-hmm. to figure out the the quote-unquote why. And so if he had no red flags of the normal stuff, hurting animals, fire, arson, all of that stuff, abuse directed towards him, I guess some people are just born terrible. Yeah. But how do you fake it for for so long? I don't know. This left me with a lot of questions. I feel very unsettled, kind of like it's a cold case. You, I think you misled me because you said (laughs) you weren't doing a cold case and you know cold cases keep me up. And now I I still feel like it's a cold case because there's so many unanswered questions. Like the why behind it all, why is that one lady put in with pillows and, and shown a lot more care than the others? And he's not alive to give us the answers. So frustrating. Right. And I wonder how many other victims. In every report, it was like, this is the known victims. There could be so many others because him and the girlfriend would leave and then people would never hear again. But if you don't have, you know, even a close relationship with your family and someone goes missing, you're like, I don't know where they are. Maybe they packed up and went somewhere fun. Like, you don't put a missing persons report out there. Well, and adults are entitled to go missing if they want to on their own. So true. Oh, this is this was a lot. I don't know. I'm glad to, I just want to know why that one. I don't know why that's sticking out to me so much, but if that is the case, why that one woman was treated so differently post-mortem mm-hmm. by him. It's fascinating. Well, I won't ever get to ask him because that man will be burning in hell and I don't plan to hang out there with him. So good riddance, Terry or Bob or whoever the hell you are. Well, (laughs) as always, thank you guys so much for tuning in to Case the Sunday Scaries. I am going to take a quick little second here to talk shop with you all. We have some pretty exciting things coming up. We have spent uh, quite a lot of time researching these cases and really trying to give the full story behind these victims. I think it's about time that we give our little community a little something extra. So very soon, keep an eye out. We will be launching a Patreon. We're not sure exactly what that's going to look like, but our Scary Squad can absolutely support us in that way. You'll be getting extra content. Annie and I are working out the details, but I did want to let you know that that is something coming down the pipeline just so that we can support this podcast and we just appreciate you guys all being here whether you become a patreon member whether you just tune in on your way to work either way we are really really grateful to have you as always you can always help this podcast grow by liking subscribing doing all the things but we will keep you updated when we decide to launch that patreon we also annie has convinced me to get tiktok it has happened i just turned 35 years old And thank you to Little Miss Social Media Manager Annie over here for the podcast. I won't be doing any dances. You're not going to get me to dance, Annie, but we are really- I thought we can. Well, get me some champagne. We'll see. But we really are trying to cultivate a, a community. We've had so many amazing people reach out to us and share their stories with us that we want to continue that. So we want to expand this to a larger audience through Patreon and yes, through 
TikTok. So stay tuned. (laughs) Stay tuned for all of that. We will be back next Sunday where I will be covering a case. I'm not going to give too much away, but until then.